Be reading Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14. And this is the infallible word of God. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. If you're a visitor here, um, I would like to personally welcome you. On behalf of Pacific Hope Church, welcome. If you are new to this church and you've been attending perhaps for a short period of time and, you know, this whole preaching bit for, you know, an hour, a sermon for an hour long is new to you, perhaps you're used to, you know, uh, little stories and things like that. What, you're, what this is, is expository preaching. So expository preaching takes effort and care with the text, but to be under expository preaching takes an expository ear. So, for your benefit, we have a book for sale titled Expository Listening. <laughs> it's for sale out in the lobby. So if this is new to you and you know, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to give this one more week and if he doesn't tell a funny story, I'm out of here. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Go read Expository Listening, amen? amen? For today's exposition, we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. This is the word of God which reads, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Our Father, we ask now by the leading of your Holy Spirit that you'd impart, impart to me grace and ability, power to preach the glorious truths within these verses. Pray for your people that you would grant us the grace of humility, understanding, and the ability to carefully follow along in this next hour, that you would be greatly glorified and that your church would be incredibly edified and encouraged in the midst of the troubles that they face on any given day. For your glory, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Things are not as they appear. It's the title of the message. As we make our way through the book of Revelation, you will clearly see that things are not as they appear. Did you get that? You will see that things are not as they appear. In an article written back in December, 
One scholar writes the following in relation to the book of Revelation. He says this, quote, Here is a book written less to tell 21st century Christians how history will end and more to tell 1st century Christians why they were having to endure such suffering. The message was not be patient, one day Jesus will reign. It was instead rejoice, for Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, reigns on high now and forever. He continues saying that the hardship and travails we suffer through on this side of the veil are not, in the end, the result of the incompleteness of the kingdom of God. They are not evidence of a still potent resistance. They are instead weapons in the hand of our Lord in the one great battle to make us more like him. His glory isn't that we should be rich and healthy or without trouble, but that we should be, in the midst of it all, like him. End quote. Like him. Troubles in this life for the followers of Jesus Christ were foretold and confirmed by Christ. He wanted his disciples to understand that they would face trouble. He made that clear. He warned the disciples of trouble that that it will mark the life of the believer in this present age. Trouble that describes the distress resulting from a believer's commitment to Christ, the word of God, and his kingdom otherwise known as tribulation. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword that divides families, he goes on to say. Why? Because, beloved, he is an offense His message, an offense. His message, a stumbling block to the Jews. Foolishness to the Gentiles. Foolishness to all who are perishing. If you remember, while Jesus was here in his earthly ministry, the masses loved him for his miracles. They loved him for feeding them for healing them. His miracles were undeniable. No one ever questioned the supernatural power of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, after the feeding of the 5,000 and they only counted the heads of men, so along with women and children, there would have been upward of 10, 15, 20,000 people that he fed there in John 6. It says the masses wanted to take him by force to make him king. But, During the earthly ministry of Jesus, things were not as they appeared. They perceived him as king, all right. And they were right. You know, seeing his supernatural power, they expected a physical kingdom, they expected a political kingdom to appear. In John 6 15, The scripture reads, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain alone by himself. On a number of occasions, after healing the lame, the sick, raising people from the dead, and even after his glorious transfiguration, where he appeared before Peter, James, and John, and he manifest in glory, he went from flesh to glory in their front of their very eyes. It says, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this thing, what is this rising from the dead and what it might mean. When Jesus inquired of his own disciples, he said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
In Luke 9.19, it says, They answered, Some say John the Baptist, other Elijahs, other Elijah, others one of the prophets of old, that they have risen, that you have risen. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You're the Christ of God. Peter was right. But even at this point, verse 21, notice, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. And he proceeded them proceeded to give them the reason why in verse 22, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. Why did he say this? Why didn't he want his identity and his miracles broadcast? Because it's very important that we understand that the gospel was not, the gospel is not, the gospel never will be about physical healing. It never will be about feeding the masses. It never will be about health and wealth. It will never be about prosperity. It never has been. It never will be. It's not about a Messiah, a Savior, who incites sappy sentimentalism. Never. He said, tell no one about these healings. Tell no one about me raising this little girl from the dead. Or even the fact that I'm Messiah. No, the message that you will proclaim is my cross and my resurrection. Then... Preach the gospel to every creature. That message is an offense. That message is not what the world would see as king. That message is not what the world would see as a Messiah, a Savior, or Lord. That message is foolishness to the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, beginning in verse 22, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and he's the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For considering your, consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring about to nothing things that are. In order that what? No human being might boast in the presence of God. That is our message. And to those whom God has sovereignly decreed to save, will in time, under such preaching, under your evangelistic efforts, come to saving faith. And they then themselves will experience and realize that this message brings trouble. When you declare, as the book of Acts does, chapter 4, verse 12, that there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which by, which by we must be saved. That's offensive. Therefore, because of that message, the Apostle John was on the island called Patmos on account of, notice, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because of Jesus and who he is. Chapter 1, verse 17, take a look at it. Who is the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Keys represent authority here. Eternal dominion, beloved, is his, and don't forget this, he rules now. Now. Do you believe that this morning? He rules now. It's Jesus 
Chapter one, verse five, notice, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a what? A kingdom. He's made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And notice the prophecy, first point in the bulletin. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, I wanted to focus on the last three points, tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance this morning, but last week we did not make it through verses 7 and 8, and I promised we'd go back there, so here we are. Notice. Once again, a principle that we must understand as we work our way through the Revelation, that this book is constantly building upon Old Testament imagery, illusion after illusion throughout this book. This, verse 7, takes us back to Daniel 7. Ryan opened with this reading this morning. I saw in the night visions, Daniel said, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Ancient of days refers to God the Father. In Daniel's vision, the son of man coming with the clouds was him coming towards heaven. In other words, towards the throne where all authority was given him. Verse 14, Daniel 7. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Praise God is right. In his ascension to the right hand of the Father, he was exalted, given authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples. We also see in verse 7 of Revelation 1 a reference to the Old Testament book of Zechariah, chapter 12 where it says there, every eye will see him, even those he pierced. Takes us back to Zechariah 12, verse 10. It says this, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. John now takes all of this Old Testament imagery and merges it together for this description of the Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter one. And behold, he says, he is coming in the clouds. Now, throughout Scripture, clouds are the visible signs of God's glorious display of majesty. We see that in Exodus 13. In Matthew 16. Matthew 24. In Psalm 104, verse 3, the Scripture reads, He makes the clouds His chariot. Again, a display of majesty. John said, look, he's coming with the clouds. This sounds much like the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Olivet Discourse. Just mark this down. You can look it up later. In Matthew 24, verse 30, Matthew 26, verse 64, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21, the context there begins with Jesus pointing to the temple, saying to his disciples, most assuredly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another of that temple. And he goes on in context to foretell of the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and all of the tribulation that will surround that event. And then I believe he goes on there to telescope a further reaching prophecy about his second coming. And I believe all of that destruction foreshadows the glorious return of Christ. Are you with me, beloved? Now, as noted over the last few weeks, there's a sense of urgency about the book of Revelation. The time is near, verse 3. 
All of these things are to soon take place. So we must ask ourselves, beloved, as we begin this study, does this mean that the predicted events of this final book of the Bible are to take place in the lifespan of John? The lifespan of the original recipients of this letter? That's a big perhaps. And if so, it will radically affect the way we understand the book of Revelation. And some do, in fact, interpret Revelation in this way, that it was written during the reign of Nero, which means if it was indeed written during the time of Nero, we have to assign much of its content to the description of the massive destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, all that came by way of the hands of Rome in 70 AD. Massive destruction which no Jew could have imagined. (laughs) Let alone the incredible tribulation that believers faced in that time. This would mean, of course, that the book was written in the mid-60s. And we're going to look in in future weeks, we're going to look at both the external and internal evidence of this book being written perhaps prior to 70 AD. Once we study the instruction, the reproof, and exhortation, and the warnings given to the seven churches in chapter 3 and 4, or 2 and 3. Now, others, if you know anything about theology and church history, have observed that this phrase, the time is near, or these things will occur suddenly, is a relative term, and could mean that when the time comes, the predicted events recorded take place in a relatively short time span. This would allow for a later dating of the book. The more traditional fulfillment of persecutions, which would have come under uh, Domitian in 96 A.D., would have been less harsh than under those of Nero prior to 70 AD. And for a very convincing defense of an early date of Revelation, I would encourage you to go purchase the book by Ken Gentry entitled Before Jerusalem Fell. I have it listed for you on the outline. If you want to look at a recent defense of the traditional view that Revelation was written around the end of the first century, you can see G.K. Beale also listed, the book of Revelation, a commentary on the Greek text. Both of these are very academic, they're kind of technical, but they are rich. And you can decide for yourself. Because I am not going to dogmatically adhere throughout our study, I'm not going to dogmatically adhere to one or the other. I'll show you external and internal evidence for those who believe it was written in 96 and external and internal evidence for those who believe it was written before 70 AD. Okay? We'll trust the Holy Spirit through the whole thing. Amen? Be that as it may, every student of the book of Revelation knows that this book, bottom line, is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So the details need not concern us yet. Just the fact of it. He's coming. Yes, he came in judgment. If it was written before 70 AD, he came in judgment. That's for sure. But he hasn't come up. He hasn't returned to bring the new heaven and the new earth yet. And to bring final judgment upon all. Hello. The bottom line is this, beloved. History is still unfolding. History is his story. What the Bible has been about from the start has led us to Calvary. The centerpiece of time, beloved, is the cross of Jesus Christ. And because of Calvary, we proceed now to the day of the Lord, the grand finale. Again, as we read through Revelation, we have to understand it is not laid out chronologically. As a matter of fact, we hear about the coming of Jesus, his glorious return in chapter 6. And you read about it in seven different pictures and that's what revelation is it's a picture god is bringing history to its culmination he who is the lord of time gathers time in his time the one who's outside of time 
Are you with me? <laughs> Jesus comes with the clouds, verse 7, where God's presence has so often been realized. Taking us back to the Old Testament, Exodus 13, Exodus 16, during the great transfiguration in Matthew 17, in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, he ascends through the clouds. So again, two Old Testament images here unite the present scene. One in Daniel, where the prophet saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds, Daniel 7.13, and another from Zechariah, where the prophet depicts Israel looking upon the one in whom they have pierced. Now, when you read John's account, John 19.37, we see that Zechariah is also fulfilled by the Roman soldier who takes the spear into the side of the Lord. Zechariah also says that they will mourn for him. And this mourning, beloved, that is in view here is not a mourning of repentance. This is a mourning of remorse for the one in whom they have rejected. When Jesus comes, it's not possible to repent. If you're hoping on some time of repentance when the Lord of glory returns, you can think no more. There's no second chance. It will not be possible to repent. The time of turning will be past. So all that is left now is the grief of rejection in this time. Those who rejected Christ will themselves be rejected by the Son of God. Are you saved? you merely know about the gospel? Are you covered by the blood of the Lamb? Is your life the product of regeneration? Conversion is the product of regeneration. Regeneration is the supernatural work of God to cause a sinner to be born again from, the, from above. It's all his work. You add nothing to salvation. Zero. Do you know this, Lord? Or do you merely know about him? Difficult as this is, especially with those loved ones that we know aren't saved, we're encouraged to agree with the divine judgment and say, Amen. Even so, Amen. Why? The reason is not difficult to grasp. The verdict is pronounced by the one who calls himself Alpha and Omega. Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is the A to Z. He's the author and he is the finisher of all things. All that lies between the completed revelation of God comes from him alone. And this verse summarizes for us the first segment of chapter 1 by emphasizing the divinity of Jesus as being one with the Father. He is divine. He's God. This is what drove the enemies of Christ during his earthly ministry mad. Listen to this. In Mark chapter 14, the high priest is standing before Jesus. The Sanhedrin standing before, he, before Jesus. Now, granted, Jesus is standing there before them in his trial, but let me tell you something. They're standing before him. He stands before nobody. He allowed himself that place. Do you understand that? Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest, in his piety, tears his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What do you want to do, man? What's our decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him to cover his face, the other gospel says with a blindfold, punch him in the face and said, prophesy now, prophet, who hits you? 
and the guards received him with blows. Passed off from one group to another because he allowed himself that. For you. His message causes friction. His message, disdain. The message of Jesus Christ, ridicule. It produces hatred. And, and, and tribulation for those that are his. Here then is John, who shares in the afflictions of Christ in what he calls the tribulation. Because of Christ, John sees himself here as, notice, a brother and partner with fellow believers. Notice verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He identifies with his readers in three ways in what's been referred to as a threefold treasure. <laughs> see if you see these things as a treasure. Number one, the tribulation. I'm your partner and brother in the tribulation. I'm your partner and brother in the kingdom, and I'm your partner and brother in patient endurance. Are you with me, beloved? Let's look at the tribulation first. Now here he's referring to the general climate of this age. This age for which we live are the last days. When Peter preached at Pentecost, he said, behold, this is the last day. The last days are the time between the coming of Christ and the return of Christ. You're in the last days. Just as John was. tribulation. Again, this is not a specific period of time of major crisis, but rather, this is what characterizes life here now. Life for John. If you remember in the ministry of Christ, after informing the disciples of the many sufferings that, that they will face, he said this in John 16, Listen to this. I have said these things to you that in me don't miss this. In me, you may have what? Peace. Where? In Christ. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Dominion's his. In heaven and on earth. Now. See, all believers of all time face this tribulation in some way, shape, or form for Christ's sake. Not, not trouble that is just the product of sin. Unbelievers face that. This is tribulation that is a result of worshiping and following the Lord Jesus Christ. Cornelis Venema says this, quote, the tribulation that serves as the sign of, these, of the times is not just any circumstance of trouble or distress, but that which results specifically from their aim to be his faithful disciples. Consequently, in many references to the persecution and trouble that will attend the Christian life in the present age, we find language used that joins the experience of tribulation closely with the believer's relationship with Christ, end quote. And nowhere is this language bolder than in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, where the Apostle Paul says, quote, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, what Paul is not saying there is that there was any lack in Christ's atoning work. None whatsoever. But rather, he's speaking of the persecution he suffers, which is really intended for Jesus. Why does the world hate believers? Because they hate Christ. The world turns their hatred for Christ towards those who represent Christ. The people know that you follow Christ? Does your family... Do your coworkers, your schoolmates know 
that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ? I mean, this is one important way that the church has fellowship with Christ. It's through suffering and it's through affliction for his name's sake. John writes from Patmos, which is a barren island. This is where Rome exiled political criminals. You know, John wasn't one of these guys who said, you know what, I'm just going to be the gospel. You know, I'm just going to merely live the gospel. You know, uh, I'm going to go to the park and hold hands with my brothers and sisters and sing Kumbaya. People will think you're probably a freak more than anything else. See, he wasn't, a, he wasn't some pacifist of gospel silence. The gospel, beloved, is truth that comes by way of a message. It's a message. Yes, we're called to be a city set on a hill. Yes, we're called to be a lamp that is placed on a lampstand. But the gospel's a message that comes from outside of us, exemplified through us. You're not going to necessarily find yourself exiled from moral living. Right? Exile, rejection, mockery, persecution will come because of the reason for morality and holy living. Christ. Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's the testimony of Jesus that brings trouble. It's the testimony of the risen Lord Jesus Christ that brings tribulation, not morality in and of itself. So loyalty to this Lord and to this King will stir up the world's disfavor. You proclaim Jesus is the only way, he's the only Savior, he's the only hope, will cause prideful resistance and unleashed hatred from those that are the enemies of Christ. You were probably like that before you were saved, perhaps. Some of us were. You know, when the news networks talk about Christianity, they portray it as some kind of a caricature. Sometimes I want to put my, not my fist through the TV, but (laughs) an object. When they make a mockery of Christ, when they make a mockery of biblical Christianity with their powerful manipulative force known as media, And for many Christians, when they see these things, when they hear these things, there's this kind of psychological pressure to cave in, to cut and run, to free themselves from association with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have brothers and sisters around the world that are suffering physical persecution for the namesake of Jesus Christ. It's all tribulation. Don't fool yourselves. We probably need more of their prayers than they need of us. So this fellow servant of Christ writes about the present reality of the tribulation. And the church of Jesus Christ is no stranger to tribulation, beloved. More people were martyred in the 20th century than all of Christendom combined. There's been a measurable increase in martyrdom in just the past few years of the 21st century. In India... Hundreds have been murdered in just the past couple of years. Churches burned. 4,000 homes burned. Christians displaced. Did I say deplaced or displaced? Displaced. India, China, Saudi Arabia, Burma, places like that. Do you know that? So here's John, our fellow brother, our fellow partner, displaced, isolated from rich, deep fellowship of other believers. Many of you experience this during the week in your workplace. Never take for granted, beloved, this rich time of fellowship on the Lord's Day. This is deep. This is rich. This is well needed. It's a privilege that we share here together. Some of you are the lone believer in an antagonistic college environment. I wish I could be there with you, boy. Tell you what. 15 minutes. I said five first service, but 15. (laughs) To challenge these snide punks. That's what they are. 
Others of you are alone in your home. Your own spouse is an unbeliever. Perhaps your children are unbelievers. Or perhaps you as children live with parents that are unbelievers. Perhaps you're mocked and ridiculed in those places, overlooked for a promotion. Notice, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. If that's you, and if it's not, it will be in some way, shape, or form. Be encouraged by the words of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're blessed in the midst of tribulation. All believers of all time face this tribulation to one degree or another. Never forget that. Nevertheless, notice at the same time, John says, even though we are partners in this current tribulation, I am also partners with you in what, beloved? Look at it. The kingdom. The kingdom. John is saying, I'm a partner with you in the tribulation and the kingdom. Now, If your theology is such that you're waiting for Christ to establish a kingdom over which he will reign purely in the future for a literal thousand years after the second coming, then we have a problem here. Because John says clearly, I am a partner with you in the kingdom now over which Christ is king now. Side note. As a member here, if there's differences of theological perspectives with regard to the millennial reign of Christ, if you disagree with me, that is no reason to separate fellowship. Very important. If you do, I I go as far as to call it sin. We don't separate over things like this. We separate over those who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. We separate over those who, who deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We, desire, we, we separate over the fact uh, of, of those who deny the humanity of Jesus Christ, that he was born of a virgin, or the doctrine of the Trinity. Those things we divide over. You don't divide over things like this. So remain open-minded. To what the scripture means by what it says. Amen? Verse 6. Revelation 1. He has made us a what? A kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. In chapter 5, beloved, we see the saints are worshiping. They're praising Christ. Verse 9. By your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign where? On earth. What happens to those who reign on earth as priests of God in Christ who die while they're on earth? Like our sister Katie. Revelation 20 verse 4. I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Where is Christ? Heaven. Heaven. They reign with Christ where Christ is in heaven. Remember, Revelation is not chronological. Numbers aren't literal. So there's no reason we should interpret 1,000 literally when we don't interpret the other numbers literally. They may or may not be. You see, because Christ has been raised up, we who are in Christ have been raised up with him. 
Whether we live or die in Christ, we reign with Christ who reigns now and forever. Dominion is his for how long? Forever and ever. Paul said this in Ephesians 1, speaking of Christ raising up. He raised him, the Father, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only on this, in this age, but also in the one to come. This is why Paul could say that we are presently seated with Christ, enthroned with Jesus in some sense. He goes on in Ephesians 2. He says, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up, he has, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Jesus, beloved, is not waiting for his kingdom. Jesus is reigning now. It's already been established. And we, as indwelt by the Holy Spirit, reign with him here or in heaven, whether we live or die in Christ. That's why the saints rule and reign from heaven above and earth below. We've been made a kingdom. We've been made priests. Therefore, John can say, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom is where we reign with him now in some sense. Are you with me? Okay, now. Even though the outward appearance in which the kingdom takes on in this age is a bit obscured or somewhat veiled, even so, nevertheless, beloved, it is present here now. It's no different. Now, please follow this. It is no different from when Jesus Christ, God, appeared on earth. God visited earth in incarnate form through Jesus Christ. His appearance was a bit obscure. Somewhat veiled. But his presence, beloved, was no less real. Although his presence was somewhat veiled in his humanity, he was here fully as God. His kingdom has come. His kingdom is still coming. This is the already established but not yet consummated kingdom of Jesus Christ. Consummation will be the new heaven and the new earth. He reigns now. Many Christians neglect to accept the fact that the kingdom reign of Christ has been established because it doesn't appear so. Things are not as they appear. Though they don't believe it, they're part of it whether they realize it or not. You're part of it. Dennis Johnson in his book, Triumph of the Lamb, writes this, quote, The church's participation in Jesus' royal power now lies largely hidden, veiled behind all, to visible affliction, poverty, and little power. What does Jesus say in Revelation 3? I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Things are not as they appear. To the church that appeared to be poor, Jesus said you are rich. To the church that thought themselves to be rich and without need, he said you're blind, naked, poor, and destitute. Not as they appeared. The fiery eyes of Christ look right through the surface. Johnson continues, he says, the visions of Revelation show us how things are, not how they look to the physical eye. Think about the greatest tribulation ever known. This tribulation is a tribulation unlike all other tribulations combined. And the greatest tribulation ever known is what produced the greatest victory ever accomplished, beloved. Both were experienced at the same time. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's no different for us. Christ's victory and established kingdom came, came and comes through suffering. See, oftentimes in these last days, victory appears as suffering. 
victory appears as suffering. So our our current experience of the kingdom is momentarily mixed with tribulation. That's what John's talking about. You see, our kingdom reign along with Christ who does reign. It's mixed with tribulation. Our lives, it comes in the shape of the cross. The shape of Calvary. Losses and crosses are part of what we should expect in following the Lamb of God, who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. John turns to see one who's to appear as a lion, right? He's the one worthy to open the scroll. But when John turns and looks, things are not as they appear because the one who's supposed to be the lion now appears as a lamb as though it had been slain. That's why he's the lion. The testimony of the revelation of Jesus Christ only confirms the other 65 books of the Bible here, beloved. The nearer you draw to Christ, more of the enemy's fire you will draw. As priests of his kingdom now. This is why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, they're eternal. He's eternal. Do you see him? He's eternal. You, beloved, are eternal in Christ. His kingdom, eternal. Things that are unseen, they are eternal. So you have this great prophecy, Old Testament allusions of Daniel and Zechariah. You have the tribulation with John as a partner and brother in as well as the kingdom. And the next of this threefold treasure that John is partnered with us in is the patient endurance that are in Jesus. This now, beloved, is how we share in our loyalty to Jesus Christ. Patient endurance. Because our experience of his kingdom is mixed with the tribulation of this age. It is the last day. So in this sense, John is a brother and a companion with many others that are suffering and are part of the kingdom. All of this mixed together requires patient endurance. Are you with me? Being a kingdom child and priest of God in Christ and the kingdom for which he rules mixed with tribulation, we need patient endurance. As God's redeemed, we must view the tension of tribulation and royalty through, again, once again, through the lens of Calvary, the cross. In all three of these ideas, tribulation, the kingdom, and patient endurance is repeated throughout Revelation time and time again. They are key principles throughout the book. This word patient endurance is hupomone, sometimes rendered just patience. But mere patience implies a passivity that this word does not intend. So we see this English translation, patient endurance. In reality, the word is meant to convey both a passive, have both a passive and active features within it. We see the passive aspect in patience. Suffering what? Long. That's what patience is, to suffer long. Along with the active part of this word, which means to persevere. We suffer long, but yet we persevere in the midst of it all. So the idea is that of standing firm under pressure, maintaining trust in our God, and a desire for spiritual faithfulness to God. The New Testament exegetical dictionary says about this word that it refers, quote, overwhelmingly and positively to independent, unyielding, defiant perseverance in the face of aggressive misfortune and thus a kind of courageousness. 
In the negative sense, it refers also to the enduring of humiliation, end quote. In Kittle's massive work, which is a theological dictionary of the New Testament, it's, a, it's like lexicography at the highest level. It says, Revelation, speaking of the book of Revelation and this particular word, quote, Revelation extols supomone as the right and necessary attitude of believers in the last hour. The two-sidedness of the word is an, is an endurance which is grounded in waiting, a waiting which expresses itself in endurance. Waiting for Jesus is on the one side the attitude which fills the whole soul of believers. On the other side, salvation is confirmed by their steadfastness to the end. End quote. That's why you read after those seven letters, Jesus says, to the ones who endure to the end, they will receive this, 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 and this. You see, enduring to the end, beloved, doesn't make us Christians. Enduring to the end proves that we are Christians. You could use the word stickability here that gets to the core of this meaning. And it's the major reason why the book of Revelation was written. So when temptation arises to cut and run or to adapt to this world system, to apostatize, which means to turn away, the apocalypse, the revelation, encourages backbone and bravery in the midst of it all. It's the bravery of Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. So maybe you find yourself asking on occasion, is it really all worth it? Maybe you asked yourself that this week. Do I want to continue to endure this level of temptation? Do I want to continue to resist and reject it day after day in order to follow Jesus Christ? I mean, the price is so high. Beloved, do not let the threats of your flesh intimidate you. You're in Christ. He's the king. He rules. He reigns. He gives you power. He gives you ability. If you're in him, you can't walk out of his hand, let alone be snatched out of it. So triumph, beloved, in this age often looks like defeat because in God's economy, things do not appear as they are. They never have been. Just read through Genesis to Revelation. The things of God are not as they appear to man. That's why he speaks to us in anthropomorphic terms throughout the Bible. He speaks to us in her human terminology, right? The arm of the Lord is not shortened that it cannot save, nor the ear of the Lord heavy that he does not hear, but your sins have caused him to turn his face from you. Does the Lord have an arm and an ear? No. He's providing us a description so that we, finite humans, can understand to some degree this infinite, mighty God. One Amen. Think about this. The cross of Jesus Christ did not, at the moment, appear to anybody, none whatsoever, to be a victory except to God himself. Things do not appear as they are in God's economy. So we, beloved, who are in Christ, we need this patient endurance in this tribulation as priests of the king who reigns now over his kingdom, established at his first coming, which will be consummated his glorious return. We do not endure when we experience blessing, do we? We endure when we experience trouble, pain, suffering, I received a letter three weeks ago from a gal in the church here who had to move to the East Coast. And prior to her moving, she wanted to write me and inform me that when she first came here and sat under the preaching here, she was convicted to the core because she lived her college life in absolute blatant rebellion to the truth she learned growing up. She said, I was convicted to the core under your preaching. I never heard authoritative preaching in my life and I grew up in the church. And God used it to transform her life. 
And she went on to describe how blessed she's been and how encouraged she's been to be part of the church with you all. She knows what to look for in a church, she said. I didn't have to endure that letter. (laughs) And it just so happened in the same week I received three or four little notes from you, some of you. I didn't have to endure those. I was encouraged by those. I was blessed by those. But I happened to receive another letter that week that I had to endure. (laughs) You have to endure contention. You have to endure complainers. You have to endure gossips. You have to endure backbiters. You have to endure people who talk about your leadership. That's enduring a headache. You have to endure headaches, let alone persecution from unbelievers for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So because we live in this age of an already inaugurated kingdom, which is mingled with tribulation, we need, like John, patient endurance that are in who? In Jesus. The patient endurance that are in Jesus, which is not at all unlike Christ himself, in what he endured to save us and establish that kingdom in the first place. Amen? Who? Hebrews 12. For the joy that was set before him endured, same word, the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured, same word, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. That's what the book of Revelation is about, that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. So, I close again. The hardships we suffer through on this side of the veil are not in the end the result of the incompleteness of the kingdom of God. No, he simply uses them to make us more like Christ. Amen? I trust, church, that you'll be edified as we go through the book of Revelation. I hope that you will study with an open mind, the book of Revelation. I hope that you will learn how to interpret Revelation by all of the Old Testament allusions that it points us back to. But if you sit here this morning in the message that you've heard, meaning the gospel, beloved friends, if it's foolishness to you, if what you heard this morning with regard to the only way of salvation that is Jesus Christ alone, if that is foolishness to you, you are perishing. You are on the road to hell now. Because the cross of Jesus Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. And I say this, I beg you, I plead you by the grace of God to come to Christ. Jesus said, repent. Repent and believe in the gospel and you will be saved. Repent means to have a change of mind. You're not Lord. He's Lord. You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. You repent and you subject yourself to his authority because he has all authority. And in love I say, come to Jesus Christ. Repent, believe, not about, but believe into He'll save you. Because when he went to the cross, what did he bear? He bore the wrath of God the Father. God hates sin and he unleashed his wrath upon his son as a substitute only, only, only for those who will ever believe. Come to him today. And he promises to save you. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the the Bible. Thank you for providing us the special revelatory truth of the gospel.
causing us to be born from above, enabling us to understand and embrace the truth of the simple, glorious, beautiful gospel. Lord, when we come into these more difficult passages of Scripture, I pray that you'll grant us the grace to work through them together as we proceed through the glorious revelation of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, handed down from the Father to the Son to an angel, given to John to give to his fellow servants. And we are those servants as well. I pray that you'd bless your church. I pray that you would uh, encourage them, those sitting here this morning covered by the blood of the Lamb, to be encouraged and edified to know that revelation is given to provide us encouragement to persevere to the end because of the reigning King, Jesus Christ. For those that are here this morning who perhaps they know about you, but they don't know you personally, and if they die in this condition, your scripture says that you will say to them, I never knew you. So I pray that they would come out from among the world, that you grant them repentance, the ability to believe, lift the veil of blindness, may their hearts be opened to cry out, what must I do to be saved? And may they understand by your grace, for your glory and their good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.